Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash shop. Hi, I'm Liz Guinness and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Lisa Blair. Lisa is a record-breaking sailor, best known for her dangerous solo journey around Antarctica. She also holds the record for being the first woman to circumnavigate Australia by sea. We want to know what it is that drives her to be out on her own for months on end in freezing cold weather and massive seas. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with Lisa today on this episode of Talking Australia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lisa. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for having me along. Uh, So how did you, um, as a young girl growing up on Sunshine Coast, get into sailing? How did that all come about? It was a little accidental and a little not accidental. So I had my mum, when my folks got divorced, she got right into sailing and into boats. So I had been exposed to boats at a younger age. But it wasn't ever something I wanted to do. It was always her thing um, and her and her new partner's thing. And so it was, I was working on a resort in the Whitsunday Islands just through university summer holidays. Mm -hmm. And I had seen all of the charter yachts just operating around the region. And I was like, oh, that could be like fun to do for three months while I finish my university gap kind of section. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, so I applied for one company, got the job and the next day quit on the island and started this new job um, as a cook and the cleaner on a charter yacht in the Sundays, and just fell in love with it. I ended up deferring my uni for a year and staying up there for a year Mm -hmm. and just learning as much as I could and, and then never really stopped. <laughs> so um, at uni, what were you studying at uni that was so easy to defer from or you just um, I was doing a Bachelor or? of Visual Arts and Bachelor of Education. Uh-huh. Um, but I've always been, I guess, one of those people that kind of follows opportunity when it comes knocking. And mm-hmm. it was, I had done my internship for my university degree in Africa, teaching in a primary school in Africa. Oh my goodness, whereabouts? Um, in Tanzania, in Tanga Town. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so... It was a friend of the family just needed a teacher straight away and so I was on the next flight kind of thing and just all happened and I was able to get it counted for uni. But because of that timeline, it meant that I had kind of six months till I could do the last section that I needed to do for my course. Right, to graduate. To graduate. Yeah. And um, and then that was only a couple of weeks of actual schooling required. So uh, it was quite easy to sort of slot it in, so to speak. And uh, I teach sailing now, but I've, <laughs> I've never actually become an art teacher. <laughs> so did you end up graduating then? or was Yes, it, yeah? I graduated, yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit to before you were teaching. You took up that uh, job on the charter boat. Yes. How quickly did you transition from cooking and and cleaning to actually working with the boat more? Um, well, I'm, I'm someone that asks a lot of questions mm-hmm. and I instantly was interested in it because I think 
sailing growing up, I just wasn't old enough to appreciate what the sport was or what it could kind of give you and, and how um, much there was to it. Mm -hmm. So when I was a bit older and I got exposed to it again, I realized that, you know, it's all this trigonometry and it's catching the wind and it's this, you know, formula of lift and, and all of the stuff that goes on with sailing. And I, I kind of found that aspect of it really fascinating as well as just like, um, you know, watching a skipper park the boat or fix the engine or do some electrical work on the boat and they could just, a jack of all trades, they could just fix everything mm -hmm. and, and it just hugely impressed me. And um, so I started just asking lots of questions and I literally like me and my deckhand, he would like quiz me at night time, what's the name of that rope and what's ah. the name of that rope and I would just try and learn that way. And I think it was about three months or so until I, I transitioned from that boat onto another boat where I was um, deck slash host. So I ran the deck and all down below as well. So the skipper would say, all right, we need to do this. And then I would go and, okay. and do that. Uh -huh. And then I would also have the food in the oven at the same time. Oh, and multitasking. And, yeah, and kind of be balancing <laughs> the schedule for both things. So, uh -huh. yeah, so, um, and that was good. I, and I did that for about a year, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what? Where, where, where did you sail on to then? Well, what I was happened? trying to get out of the galley and um, I wasn't getting any opportunities within that company to do that. Mm -hmm. So I decided to leave the company and finish those couple of weeks of university that I had. And on the very last, like almost the day I finished my course and actually graduated, um, I had a friend uh, from uni call me up and say, hey, I'm in Fiji. I'm sailing with my dad to Hawaii. Um can you get here in a week? We need another crew member. Are you interested? I'm like, I can get there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I packed up again and, and jumped on a plane and flew to Samoa and met this boat. And then we spent sort of three months cruising through the Pacific Islands over to Hawaii. Oh, and wow. um, he didn't have a sat phone or anything. So we were completely off the grid for three months. And it was just this surreal experience. And I'd never sailed across an ocean and, and stood watch at nighttime and, and done those kind of things and there was sort of six of us or five of us on board the boat so we would do two hours on and sort of eight hours off and um yeah so it was just this huge adventure and I just loved it so I just kept wanting more was it a bigger boat I, I'm no smaller no, boat than smaller what boat. I learned on it was a little 40 foot steel boat called mm -hmm. Bird of Dawning we used to call it the rooster and uh, <laughs> much to the owner's disgust. I bet. <laughs> Sorry, Keith. <laughs> and uh yeah and he was um moving over there He's an American and um, he's an architect, so he was moving over there to sort of build a, a house for his friend mm -hmm. in Hawaii, So, and he was going to live on the boat. So when you say um, stand watch at night, what does that mean? What do you... So um, you can't kind of just let a boat sail because there's lots of things you can hit, including other boats and container ships and islands and reefs and, okay, and all it, of that. Obviously out in the middle of the ocean, not li as likely to hit an island, so we'd be, you'd be looking for more things like... The bigger ships and yeah things. traffic and also like the wind changes it's not a constant direction so mm -hmm. it will fluctuate 10 20 degrees throughout a night um so basically standing watch you're you're just keeping an eye out for any shipping and any unknown you know foreign items and mm -hmm. stuff you do see a fair bit of space debris come in in the middle of the ocean and, and really? stuff like that yeah yeah you just see this flashes of color falling from the sky and yeah it can be really surreal wow, sometimes that'd be amazing yeah um you then i'm not sure how long between but you became part of a crew that sailed around the world yes so i um 
I came back from Hawaii and I had zero dollars again, as the story of my life. <laughs> and so I got the first job I could get, which was selling costume jewelry in the mall for five dollars. Um, so it's these five dollar bits of plastic. You sell them at one of those little stalls that's in the centre, like oh, a temporary like in, kind of in stall. Sydney? Were you back in Sydney? No, or? this is the Sunshine Coast. Okay. Um, and uh, while I was there, my mum's partner had noticed I had this interest in sailing now. So he started lending me all these books on sailors. And so I started reading about solo sailing and, and Robin Knox Johnson and Kay Cotty and Jesse Martin and all these historical kind of figures yep. in sailing. And um, at the same time, I was sort of formulating this kind of background idea that solo sailing might be something I'd like to try one day. I had no idea when or how or, you know, what that would look like, mm -hmm. but it, it interested me. Why did it interest you, just as a matter of interest? Um, I like the additional challenge of being on a boat on your own. So there's no one else to rely on. So if literally it's hitting the fan, you have to step up and be strong enough and be hard enough and, and make that work. And if you're tired, who cares? You've got to get it done. Like there's no one there that you can kind of skip out on and let them do it for you mm. and take a rest. Like it's it pushes you to another level that you don't get otherwise with sailing. So, And is that something that you find you need in other areas of your life as well? You no, sailing's enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just the sailing then. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I like adventure and sailing gives me that sense of adventure and sailing solo gives me the sense of challenge and achievement. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I really like planning big, big projects because that level of planning that has to go into something like that, it takes like a whole year or more to actually make sure you've ticked all the boxes and you've made the trip safe and you've built the redundancies and the backups. And so that research that goes into the beginning side of those projects is really interesting as well because, you know, I'm learning about different weather patterns and this and that and, and structures of the vessel and, and what systems work, what won't work. And yep. so I'm constantly kind of learning. And I think I've always sort of had a thirst to kind of challenge my knowledge and, and that sort of filtered down through my sailing and why it's led me to the kind of sailing that I've done. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the round the world race. There yes. was a team of how many of you? Um, yeah. So I found out about the race through Robin's book mm -hmm. and I spent 12 months fundraising um, and I raised $80,000 to go and compete in the race. Oh gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. So it was like my first big challenge where I had no money and, and tried to make something possible. And then um, on board, there's 10, it's the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race. Mm. And there's 10 identical boats that race each other around the world in like a match racing kind of thing and you race country to country basically or ra racetrack you might have two races in one leg and um, on board you have anywhere from sort of 15 to 20 people and one professional skipper and 10 of you on each boat do the whole circumnavigation and then we have what call, are called leggers can come in and do one leg of the journey. Okay. So and it's eight sections for the whole race so yeah so it was um, for me i needed a platform that I could learn in because I had, you know, very basic level of knowledge. And if I ever wanted to do something like solo sailing, I had to learn how to fix an engine, how to repair sails, how to fly a spinnaker, how to navigate. Like, mm. and I didn't know that stuff yet. So I decided that the clipper race would be a really good crash course in learning. And um, so I signed up and it was, yeah, I, I kind of left with an amateur level of experience and came back with enough knowledge to be a captain. So, wow. um, you know, it's a 12 month, very intensive <laughs> training course yeah. on the job. <laughs> And so then you got into solo sailing. How did that all come about? 
Yeah, so I was, um, when I got back from the Clipper race, I got all my commercial tickets. So I became a captain in the industry and I started skippering boats in the Wit Sundays. And um, I found out about a yacht race called the Solo Trans-Tasman Yacht Race, which runs once every four years from New Zealand to Australia. And my family hadn't really been able to be a part of the Clipper that much because we were in so many different foreign countries. And this race, you actually sailed back into Malulaba, which is my home port. Um, so I thought that that would be a really nice way to sort of launch into solo mm. sailing. Um, I was the only female to sign up and I was the only person without a boat. So minor details. Yes. Um, I had a year to figure out how to get a boat. And so I was sort of ringing people and calling boat brokers and anyone who had a boat up for sale and trying to convince them to charter me a boat. And I called this guy up, James Buick, and he had this Open 40 racing yacht, which is um, a smaller version of your Hugo Boss racing yacht, super sexy, you know, lovely boat, kind Gorgeous. of the, the one that we w would have wet dreams about with sailing. Um, so <laughs> pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no pun intended, but pardon the pun. <laughs> and, um, and so I was talking to him and I was trying to really hard to convince him to charter me his boat. And he was like, look, it's up for sale. I don't want to charter it. You can buy the boat and it's not that expensive. Maybe if you roll this campaign in with a bigger one, you've got a bigger chance of actually raising the money. And he said, have you heard about this Fedor Konyakov guy who's doing this Antarctica circumnavigation? Yep. And I was like, no, what's that? And he's like, oh, I was actually looking at it, but now we've got kids and, and you know, my wife's pregnant again and I don't want to kind of go down that path anymore. So you should have a look at this trip. It was what I was looking to do with my boat. And um, so I had a longer look at it and it was Fedor Konyakov in 2008 circumnavigated Antarctica without stops in 102 days. He's a Russian. Russian sailor, yeah. yeah. And he's, he's sort of a jack of all trades. He's this, this Russian, crazy Russian adventurer. Sorry, Oscar Konyakov, I didn't call your father crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard he looks a little like Rasputin, is that true? Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, he's hot air ballooned around the world. He's, um, you know, rowed across oceans. He's currently rowing around the world in the Southern Ocean and he's almost at Cape Horn having left from... Uh, New Zealand, so he's at sea at the moment on a little rowboat oh my Lord. at 69 years of age. Oh my goodness! Like, and he's this Russian guy with this massive beard, and just it is the loveliest person. And um, slightly mad, I'm wondering. Well, you know, I think he's very spiritual, oh. um, so he he uses that a lot through his adventure to get him through. And um, yeah, so anyway, I found out about this trip, and and my instant response was, "There's no way." Like I raced in those oceans when I did the Clipper around the world yacht race and there's no way that that kind of journey would be doable on my own as a five foot two little girl. And, um, and that, but then I kind of started looking at it and I was trying to raise the money for the Trans-Tasman and I was trying to combine it with something that was achievable and from a sponsorship point of view, it's got to be a unique project mm. and large project and to really... people's imagination. Exactly, and yep. to capture the market for, um, you know, for your sponsors to get a return. And so I was sort of juggling all of these things and I, I started researching what the weather was going to be like down there and what's the worst possible conditions you can kind of likely face and how cold would it be and where was the iceberg line and, mm. and you know, going through all of the, that kind of process. And after about three months, so I kind of came to the conclusion that it was possible. I then, um, <laughs> sorry, we just had a sign fall down in the roof. <laughs> um, I then uh, called mum and 
started throwing the idea to her about doing this trip and she was absolutely adamant that I don't go and um, she's like you're not there yet don't it's too risky like no and I was like okay I'll just sort of table it a little bit but I the idea was there now and I kind of wanted to do it but I hadn't really made that 100% commitment to Mm -hmm. it yet and um, and I sort of started down the road of preparing for Antarctica and it wasn't really until I completed the Trans-Tasman Yacht Race and I raced back to Australia in this little tiny um, sort of 32-foot boat that um, I asked mum again and I was like, so what do you think about this Antarctica idea? And she was like, mm, oh, I guess you're experienced enough now and gave her blessing and, and so I committed to the project wow. and, and off we went. Oh, and a brave um, mum, brave, brave girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and then it took me another um, sort of two and a half years trying to raise any kind of money to get the boat and then three and a half years till I actually left from, from that moment. So it was a, a bit of a long slog. So you sailed out from Albany in Western Australia? Yes. Um, and then which, way, which direction were you heading? How, how did it all pan out? Yeah, so for me to be eligible for a world record, I had to do the same racetrack as Fedor Konyakov. So he um, he raced on something called the Antarctica Cup Ocean Race, and he raced on the Antarctica Cup Ocean Race racetrack, which was sticking between 45 degrees south, which is kind of just below Tasmania, and 60 south, which is just above kind of um, the Antarctic Peninsula, if you kind of think of that section of the ocean and um and he left from albany in western australia so when he left he went straight south to a gate entry onto this racetrack and then did his whole circumnavigation between 45 and 60 south so to make myself eligible for his record i also left from albany and i went straight south and then i entered into the racetrack and i did the whole circumnavigation between 45 and 60 um so i turned left and i went um in a clockwise direction around antarctica I imagine there's all sorts of uh, hurdles in, in, in those waters, huge seas, cold, icebergs. All of them. Storms, <laughs> massive waves. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? What, how, did it how did you cope with all of that? Um, varying degrees of success. <laughs> Generally okay. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer that for something like this, you have to trust the boat. You have to know that the boat's the right boat for the job, that it can get you through those storms. And if you don't trust that, all you're doing is you're doubting constantly as the massive storm's roaring around you. You're like, is this wave going to roll us? Is this wave going to get us? Or is that wind too strong? And, you know, and you're kind of like running a, a commentary in your head of doubt. And you can't have that when you're in those conditions and out in, in those storms. And if you imagine like the centre of a cyclone, you're in that kind of once a week at sea so you're kind of um how to describe it two-story three-story buildings as waves oh lord and then what happens when the wind comes is it breaks the top of the wave it doesn't throw the whole wave over like you would see at the beach here but the very top kind of two three meters of the wave curls over like a mini um sort of wave at the beach Mm. and then that causes sort of like a meter to two meters of white water that will hit the boat and the white water has a lot of pressure behind it so one square meter of whitewash is one ton of pressure applied so you're thinking a 30 foot wave with three meters of white water roaring down at you that kind of slaps into the boat and just throws you so you can get thrown 50 60 meters in a 10 ton boat 
like you weigh a matchstick. So how does that feel? <laughs> well, it's not fun. No, <laughs> I would say horrifying. <laughs> not fun is another way. But um, I, I guess through my research and everything, I knew what I was coming into, and I knew because I'd sailed in those conditions with crew with the Clipper race. I trusted that boat so much and I trusted my skipper's um, calls in the clipper around the World Yacht Race in those conditions that I knew it was survivable and um, and I hadn't really tested my boat in those conditions yet. So once the first really big storm was through, I knew that we could basically take what was coming at us. Um, but, uh, yeah, you've got to just kind of prepare as best as you can and then you go inside the boat and minimise risk. And um, if I'm on deck, I'm at risk of getting washed by a wave or hit mm. or washed overboard or, you know, um, maybe break my leg or my arm. or so. And as a solo sailor, I'm the weakest link. So it's all about protecting me keeping me safe and not in an area where I can get thrown around the cabin or anything like that. But generally as the storm would approach, I would always have some nerves. And then um, in the full thick of it, if the boat was doing well, I would just admire it because it's one of the most magical things to see is to be in the eye of a storm in the middle of the ocean, completely on your own and know that you're going through it okay and be able to just sit there and look at it and watch it and you know, sometimes the wind's blowing so strong that you have to turn your head away from the wind to actually get a breath of air because there's so much water in the air yeah. as it's getting ripped off the top of the waves. And, um, you know, it's just this incredible experience that's it's really hard to describe. But it's um, for me, it's always magical to actually see those storms and be in them. I love it. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment with Lisa Blair. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com au slash talking Australia. In between the, the storms and the smooth sailing, we get to a point, um, oh, I think it was about a thousand nautical miles off South Africa and something goes terribly wrong. Yeah, so I had sailed three quarters of the way around um, Antarctica and for me, Cape Horn was highlighted as the highest risk kind of section of the voyage and I had sailed past Cape Horn and past a body of water known as Iceberg Alley, which is, you know, that's always nerve-wracking. Mm, and then um, I was just sailing out of the South Atlantic Ocean and into the South Indian Ocean, which would have been the last four weeks at sea. So kind of the home stretch. Home stretch, yeah, yeah definitely. And I was starting to really think about home and what's that going to be like and what's going to happen and you know all of those kind of thoughts and um when you're at sea solo you still have to keep a fairly good watch um so I don't ever really sleep longer than sort of 20 to 40 minutes on a journey like that so it's lots of little naps and you're constantly in a high level of exhaustion and you're just trying to function as much as you can in that exhaustion and I do something called sleep banking where um it doesn't matter what the conditions are like or how tired or rested I am, I will always sleep as much as I can because you never quite know when the next emergency or the next disaster might occur and you can't actually sleep, sleep. for two days or, you know, whatever. Um, so I was napping 
as I did. And I had been up 20 minutes earlier and kind of checked on things and the boat was going well. My average day in the Southern Ocean, in the in the Atlantic Ocean specifically, was um, basically sort of 30 to 50 knots of wind and waves that were sort of eight, six to eight metres on average. That's average. Wow. That was like, it was mostly storms through the Atlantic, mm -hmm. whereas the Pacific, I had the low, high, low, high system. Right. Um, whereas the Atlantic was just low, 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 low. <laughs> <laughs> Very few highs. <laughs> and um, so, I, yeah, so I was just in these rough conditions, but I'd been in them for weeks and it was no different to any other kind of day at sea. And, um yeah, and I just, uh, I was laying in bed and out of nowhere I just heard bang and it was like something had snapped but it sounded so loud that it sounded like a gunshot had gone off because it was like this ringing in your ears as it echoed through the boat. Oh my goodness. And I, um, I sort of jumped up onto my engine box, which is in the centre of the boat, and I have this Perspex dome that's above me that I can see out and the idea of that was to prevent my exposure so I didn't always have to go outside to keep a good watch. Yeah. And um, so I was on that and I looked to the back of the boat thinking the problem was there and that was totally fine. And I looked to the front of the boat and I could just see my 22-metre-long mast kind of jellying around like a hula girl shaking her hips. Oh. And uh, I realised that my mast, like my piece of rigging wire, had snapped. Um and so that was pretty terrifying. And uh, then I grabbed my life jacket because the next thing you can do is you can change direction, which is called attack, mm -hmm. and put the pressure of the wind and everything on the other side of the rigging where it's not damaged. So I grabbed my life jacket and I was just climbing outside the hatch as I heard the whole mast snap and come crashing down. And it's this gut-wrenching sort of sound of metal on metal grinding and screeching and mm. the whole boat shudders as all the forces applied to the boat change and shift. So she's shaking and flexing and you can, and it's so loud. And, um, yeah, and at that point I was a 1,000 nautical miles directly south of South Africa and I had a new storm just developing and coming through. So the conditions were going to worsen through the night. So what did you do? Well, the biggest risk in that situation is that the, when the mast snaps is you have it still attached to the boat and you have all the forces applied to that mast of the wind and the waves and everything. So what was happening was the mast was kind of seesawing on the deck. It had snapped at deck level and rotated the boat 180 degrees so that the mast was to the waves and the boat was to the leeward side of the mast. And by this stage, the conditions had started to develop and get worse and I was starting to get that one metre of white water that's applying one tonne of pressure. And, you know, um, so as I'm there, it's kind of still on the deck a little bit, but any second a wave can rip it off the deck and actually push it through the centre hull of the boat and sink you, flood you and sink you. So that was the, it was kind of like a battle against time and, and trying to race and get it disconnected and also trying to look at how to disconnect it in a way that didn't compound the scenario and make it worse because it would allow it to fall off yep. or, you know, so it was, it was just a lot of juggling with that um, and uh, a lot of fear and the whole time you're in a boat that's now stricken. So now that the boat is stationary, there's nothing propelling it forward. The waves weren't passing under the boat, they were passing over the boat. 
So every sort of 30 seconds, you get a wall of water just come over and you'd be on your hands and knees on the deck trying to hold on and you'd be completely submerged underwater, um, you know, throughout all of that. So you're trying to hold on to tools, keep a hold of the boat, you're attached to the boat to the tether, but if you're in the water, it's so hard to climb back on board and, and freezing conditions. Yeah. So the air temperature was two degrees at the time. And um, so... I uh, had gone on deck and had a quick look and I managed to get completely soaked through in that quick look without protection, like without foul weather gear on. And then I went inside and got kitted up to deal with the emergency and grabbed some tools and went back up on deck. And by that stage, I was already completely soaked through to the bone, even though I have waterproofing gear over, over the, the top, top now. now. Um, but it meant that throughout the night, I actually succumbed to hypothermia. And with the waves pushing and pulling the mast constantly, it was actually cutting the boat in half. I had like this kind of 30 centimetre long hole in the side of the boat where it was kind of seesawing on top of and it was... That pressure. Yeah, yeah. and it was just literally slicing the boat in half. So I did disconnect a couple of pieces of rigging and I had issued a pan pan to my shore manager. So a pan pan is one step below a mayday. A mayday is I require immediate assistance, I'm at immediate risk of loss of life or vessel, whereas a pan-pan is I require assistance, but I'm not at immediate risk of loss of life or vessel. And the difference is, um, like a mayday, they would send, you know, the, the Australian Navy would come down kind of thing, whereas a pan-pan, they may divert a passing ship. So it sounded pretty dire to me. Why Why did you decide a pan-pan instead of a, a mayday? Because the boat was still floating and the okay. boat wasn't sinking or in a position to sink yet. Yeah. Um, so it was still, an, in a way, a recoverable scenario. And I had briefed with different riggers and shipwrights before I even left on how to deal with an emergency such as this and, and what would the steps be and what was the options and, and everything. And um, so... Yes, I could have got washed overboard. Yes, a lot of different things could have happened. But also help was three days away. Mm. You know, the closest ship to me was 600 miles away. So even if they motored full throttle, which they couldn't do in that kind of sea state, they would have taken three days to get to me. So You had to fix it. Exactly. And, and like I always kind of knew that with that trip mm. because I was going to such a remote part of the world that rescue was simply not an option. The last, second last piece of rigging was the forestay wire. And um, that's the very forward piece of rigging wire that goes to the very top of the mast. Mm -hmm. And um, the way it had kind of fallen, it had blocked my access to the disconnecting pin that I was trying to knock out. And I had the option of kind of wedging my arm underneath it and knocking it out that way. But the second it lets go, it kind of becomes a weapon and it whips around the deck. And I had a high chance that it would break my arm or further injure me. Yeah. And then I'd be stuffed because I couldn't do anything with a broken arm yeah, on board right. the boat. And uh, the other option was to climb over the safety rails at the very front of the boat and sit down on the bowsprit and separate it from there. But out there, given how much the waves were breaking over the boat, I had maybe a 50-50 shot of coming back inside the rails. I remember um, calling my shore manager up and giving him an update. And he's like this super jovial kind of guy, Jeff. And, and he's like, I said to him, I've released the backstay and the inner force. And he's like, well done, Lisa. We're all behind you here in Australia. Like, keep going. Like, you're doing well. <laughs> and I remember just being like, 
you have no idea what's coming next. And I told him that the next thing I need to do is go out onto the bowsprit and that I, you know, was in these conditions and, and the level of risk associated. And he was like, right, okay, I understand. And then I said to him that I have my PLB, which is a personal location beacon attached to my life jacket, which is like an EPIRB. Yep. Um, and I said to him that if I get washed off the bow, I'm going to trigger my EPIRB which means that basically don't come and get me because I would have been in the water and you'd be recovering a body. Um, so that was the kind of level of conversation. Quite a conversation to have. With yeah, you, it was yeah. quite a stressful one. It was quite a quick one too because I was still in, I need to get this done of course, like now. Emergency mode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I hung up the phone. I went up to the front of the deck and I remember sort of getting about two metres from the bow and completely freezing with fear, like just frozen, like I couldn't move forward. I but I had to get it done and there was no other options and I was watching the waves and I was still running through every possible scenario in my head like there's got to be a better way, there's got to be a safer something option, there's got to be something I've missed mm. and I just couldn't come up with anything else in that situation, in that moment in time and um, it was too wet to use an angle grinder, a hacksaw would take too long and I was just sort of running through all these things in my head and so I just took the leap and I jumped up and I sat down at the front and I thought I would be able to kind of lock my legs in underneath the bowsprit. Mm -hmm. Turns out I'm really short <laughs> <laughs> and I can't. Had to figure that out. <laughs> figured that out in the worst possible moment in time. That's right. Um, so I ended up kind of gripping with my thighs and then I had my left hand on what was left of my rail, which was kind of buckled and twisted to the side. And my right hand held the hammer and my left hand had a screwdriver. And I had to wait until the gaps between the waves. And basically what was happening was in the moonlight, you could see a wave coming at you from the left and you would see the white water roaring down. And I would just kind of hug the boat as much as I could. And then as soon as it passed and I was no longer underwater, the next second I would have to let go completely and put my screwdriver in the split pin and hammer with the hammer to try and knock the split pin out and then see the next wave come and kind of grip on again. And you'd get like sort of five or six seconds of actual work in. I, um, yeah, called Jeff back up and said I did it. And he was like, thank God for that. <laughs> Good job, Lisa. Australia's <laughs> cheering for you. <laughs> and then I uh, got the last pieces finished and, um, and I had put a retrieval line on the mast and the intention was to let it stay there and wait for the storm to pass and in the calm between the storm try and um, recover what I could off the mast or maybe I could use it and step it as a new mast or do something with it. Um, however, because I was kind of getting lifted six, seven metres by these waves, as soon as I kind of separated the last piece of rigging, the mast started to sink and then I got pulled up and the line snapped and I lost everything. So you lost it. Yeah. I'd managed to keep my boom, which is the horizontal piece of kind of mast that you see the mainsail flies off yep. um but that was the only thing i'd managed to save that night so that, that the, the sun comes up you do the repairs as best you can uh, but you don't have a mast i don't have a mast but i do have an engine um so i have 250 liters of fuel on board which wasn't going to be enough to get me to south africa but that day I had a message come through from the Maritime Rescue Coordination Centre in Cape Town and they had, unbeknown to me, diverted the closest container ship to my aid, which was uh, 600 miles away at the time. And uh, I 
they basically had asked me, do I want a rescue? And I said to them, no, I'm, the boat's floating. I, I want to get the boat home and I'm okay. I haven't had any major injury or anything. Um, but is there a possibility of doing a fuel transfer or getting some fuel from this ship? Mm-hmm. Because then I can actually motor the rest of the way to South Africa and then make repairs from there and, and a new plan. And... Um, and so they spoke to the master of the ship. He said, okay. Um, the ship started motoring south. I kept going north. And it took us three days to intercept in the Southern Ocean. And I had requested that they put all available fuel into um, containers and uh, tie the containers together and throw them into the water and then with a float on it. And then I'd pick it up from the water and I'd just pull them all in. Um, however, when I got there, I quickly learned that it was a Chinese-owned container ship crewed by Korean-speaking sailors, and they had no real concept of the weakness of a fiberglass-built boat. And so when I arrived, they had a 44-gallon drum on the deck of the ship and a bowser line oh. hanging off the side of the ship like I was going to fuel up Suck like I'm out. at a fuel station. And, um, and they had two fenders out. And their fenders were two tyres hanging off the side of the ship at the middle of the ship on the leeward side. So as they were rolling in the six-metre swell, those tyres would sort of touch the water and then the next minute be ten metres up in the air. And if I had been foolish enough to actually take a line or take two lines and tie up, they would have hung the boat completely out of the water and snapped it in the centre. Oh, my gosh, of course. Because the boat's not designed to be hung from bow and stern. And it would have literally just snapped the boat in half and sunk it. Um... So I was refusing and we, we ended up in like a Mexican standoff and um, I managed to convince the ship to please put all the containers in the water, tied together with a float on them and I'll collect them from the sea. And um, they finally did it. Which is what you wanted 12 hours earlier. <laughs> exactly, <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> so you're in South Africa, you're in Cape Town and then... With a very broken boat. Yes, and I imagine most people would think that's it. I've yeah. tried, I've done it, I've tried as hard as I can, but it's not in my favour. But that, not you. No, like it's something that I spent so many years working on, like just three and a half years of complete commitment. So that's you no know, socialising with friends, no partying, no like having a relationship, living in a tiny hovel of a house to put every bit of scent that I earned into the project. And I just was so focused on that end goal. My total goal Winning or beating Fedor Konyakov's record was like a bonus and it was something I could use for the media and the marketing and stuff. But my real goal was to safely sail the whole way around Antarctica and come back alive. Mm. And like I'd sailed three quarters very well and I had this issue that had occurred which turned out to be electrolysis with the rigging, caused the demasting and I had managed to survive that scenario. But now I needed to get the boat home and I wanted to get the boat home and I could wait four months or five months for winter to pass and Mm. then sail the boat back and void the record completely and maybe try again next year. But I also emotionally didn't know if I could cope with being back in that scenario a year Mm. later and fighting it and just the doubt of the demasting and everything. So I decided that, well, I didn't, I was initially super depressed when I was just making my way back to South Africa and I just kept trying to remind myself, like, just focus on getting to land, just focus on getting to land and just focus on safety and, Mm. and, you know, just Just worry about that later, worry about that later. And then I worked out through a conversation that there was the potential that I could restart the record from South Africa and do it with one stop. 
And so we started talking to our insurance company and um, they were brilliant, Edward Williams Marine Insurance and Northern Reef, and they came on board uh, in a big way. So I, in all of my refit time, I had this insane refit where I was just, you know, getting three hours sleep a night, just go, 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 crazy jobs list to do and just trying to get to the start. And in and amongst all of that, I'd filled out the insurance paperwork online. And what I had done was a typo. And so instead of my, my boat was insured for 250,000, but the mast, you're gonna allocate sections to different parts of the boat. So you might put some to the hull, some to the rigging, yada, yada, yada. And for me, I thought I'd put 120,000 to the mast and it said 20,000. So I approached the CEO with a sponsorship profile and I said, look, if I did the Sydney to Hobart straight after when we get back, and if you can meet me halfway with 60,000, and then I can find a secondhand mast and with sponsors and donations, I might be able to get it together. Whereas with 20,000, there's no way that yeah. I could pull that off in time. Um, and so they agreed. So they came on board for another 40,000. And so I had $60,000 budget for the mast and the rigging and the sails. And my sail makers, quantum sails were awesome. And the riggers in Cape Town um, were great. I had the wire shipped over from Australia, from Arcus Wire, who was my sponsor. And everyone else, like the ropes, everyone just like pitched in and like helped out where they could and where they couldn't do it completely, no charge. They would only charge me the cost of it actually to them rather mm. than, mm. you know, inflating that. And the whole community of sailing like got behind me yeah, and supported so it. Everyone was on board. Yeah. yeah. And um, I tried to find a secondhand mast and I found one in Australia for 15000 and it was going to cost me 40000 to get it to Cape Town. And then I started hunting around in Africa in general. And I was like, getting something by truck over land would be so much cheaper than like trying to buy one. Mm. And a brand new mast was 60,000 in South Africa. And so I um, had been hosted by this lovely family, Deb and Ray, and they were just a, a couple of people who knew through the International Sailing Network and knew about my plight. They offered for me to stay with them for the whole time that I was there. So I basically moved in with them and they got on the phone to everyone that they knew in different yacht clubs and anyone in the cruising community and said, you know, anyone know of a mast? Anyone know of a mast? And we just did the ring around and we found a boat called Thunderchild and it turned out that they had changed their mast from aluminium to carbon fibre like 10 years earlier and they still had the original mast sitting in a shed in South Africa. And so I picked up this mast, it's two metres shorter than my old mast, but it fit and it would get me home and I picked it up for like 5,000 Australian. Oh my gosh. So yeah, it, through all of that and the chaos and trying to import stuff and it took two months, but I was able to go again. So you're, you're back on the water, you have to head back down to where you where the mast broke in the first place to restart the record, is that right? Yeah, yeah, so the intention for me was always, I had a couple of options, I could just sail back to Australia or my, what I really wanted to do was sail back to the position of demasting, cross that track and then finish the record, keeping within that racetrack of 45 and 60 south mm. to finish it as if I had never had the demasting effectively. The difference was that it was now winter. Um, so winter had, we were about two or three weeks into winter and I had spoken to my meteorologist, Bob McDavid in New Zealand, quite extensively about what the worst conditions were likely to be in winter, what could I expect? Mm. And I juggled what he had said and what I'd found out on my own and, and I'd spoken to a few other people and other cruisers that had spent some time in Antarctica and, and I sort of worked out that it was capable of doing the trip in winter. And the main difference we could see was that the swell would be larger, 
the storms would be more frequent, but not any greater severity than what I'd already encountered. And it would just be a lot colder. So I decided to continue and tried another technique with my boat that I hadn't tried yet called hoving two, which is basically where in really, really rough storm conditions, you stall the sails out and the boat drifts sideways to the waves. And what happens is it creates this slick in the water where you've disturbed the water and it makes the waves break on the slick instead of on the boat. Oh. And it's like this old technique that a lot of ancient sailors use, but it's normally done on boats that have a really big keel. And my boat has a racing keel, which is a really narrow, small keel. And I didn't think it would have the same effect on my boat. And it didn't work perfectly, but it worked enough for me to get through. So... I started sailing for a day and then when the 15 metre waves would hit, I would hove to, ride out the waves and then sail for a day, hove to through the 15 metre waves again, sail for a day and so on and so forth. And um, it took me another five days to get to the position of demasting. I did get flipped 180 degrees by a wave, so completely upside down and then back up. Oh, my God. And I was knocked down like every 30 <clears throat> minutes I'd be horizontal from a wave, like just smashing into the side of the boat and knocking you horizontal. So that was like kind of my new normal. <laughs> and um, That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going upside down was terrifying. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, and sometimes the waves would hit the side of the hull with such violence that I thought it actually cracked the hull and I'd have to get up on deck and look because it, it – it, had such a cracked sound to it with the impact mm. and what happens is it doesn't just hit you it throws you but you're at the peak of a 30 foot wave and then it throws you to the bottom of the wave and so you impact on this like almost like cement so the boat like kind of hits the cement and crunch okay. and everything gets violently jolted like a car crash kind of thing so for me I was like refusing to go anywhere in the boat I would be in my bunk tied in and that was it like riding out these storms kind of thing and you'd bring a few snacks and some water and try and avoid having to go to the toilet for the next 12 hours (laughs) breathe through it (laughs) yeah basically and trying not to let your mind um create too much you know thinking about it the mental strength that you have is (laughs) unspeakable so um yeah and then the same day i crossed my position of dean marcy i got my first blizzard at sea and I had like two inches of snow dumped on the deck of the boat. And I can tell you one of the most painful experiences is putting in shortening sail in a blizzard because you don't have gloves on because you've got to use the ropes and you've got wind, 50 knots of wind, pelting snow into your face and you're trying to see what you're doing and it's just, yeah, it's very painful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, I would imagine. <laughs> to say the least. And then... Um, the, the interesting thing that did happen, though, was once I started actually heading with the weather, it all kind of calmed down because I'm pacing with the wind and with the storms, so it sort of spread the storms out a bit more. And um, I knew by that point I was going to achieve this, or I should, in theory, achieve this. I had four weeks to go, and I just had to ride it out now. And so that, like, really impacted my mental health and, and made me a lot more positive and and the small things that were all big problems before suddenly weren't such a big problem and um you know and I, and I sort of just slowly took in those last couple of weeks at sea so mm. and so you sailed back in is it 182 days after you left yeah so the official record time's 182 days um what that means is that they count all the time that I'm in South Africa as well, so they don't stop the clock through all of okay. that. So um, we also tried to see how far off Fedor Konyakov's record I would have been if I didn't stop. Mm-hmm. And so we we did a, a mock-up 
time of taking out the moment I demastered to the moment I crossed my track again to see where I would have finished and I was one day behind him. So and close. that was with a new mast, which I'm sailing slower and I'm more careful and in winter. And, yeah. you know, so I was one day ahead of him when I demastered. So I had a really good shot of actually breaking his record. Um, and when I initially finished this trip, I sort of felt like I'd kicked all the goals. Like I'd survived, I'd gone around, I'd done something most men wouldn't do, let alone women. And I had done it against all odds. Whereas a couple of years later, I'm now kind of like, hmm, maybe I'll find my way back to Antarctica yeah. shortly and I kind of want to go back and break his record. So <laughs> <laughs> so is that is that on the on the cards, truly? On the cards, yeah. Yeah, it's something I'm working towards at the moment. And then I've also got my eyes on maybe doing a circumnavigation around the Arctic. So... Well, it's no sitting still for you, is it? No. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of that with us. You're welcome. And please, please, please come back and, and tell us uh, more about your sailing endeavours really soon. Yes, definitely. And people can follow, you know, through my social media and my website and everything. I blog every day at sea, so you can come along for the ride. You find time to blog. I blog almost a thousand words a day, actually. Yeah, surprisingly enough. Just sort of tell people what happened, what I ate for lunch. And <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's really interesting and other times not so much. <laughs> I'm sure everyone will want to stay tuned. For yeah. Sure. Thanks so much, Lisa. Awesome. Thank you. Cheers. That's it for this episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.